And welcome. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, our wonderful and very appreciated community radio partners, as well as the podcast listeners, those great people floating in the stratosphere listening via satellite uh, or uh, illegal cable hookup. We appreciate you, too. Oh, uh, Stefan, you're you're silent here. Hang on a second. Why is Stefan silent? Stefan, keep trying. Keep talking, Stefan. Hello. Stefan, I can hear you. Aha. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. We just see uh, there's two techs here to, to screw one screw into a light bulb here. We got it done. Yes. Okay, you're good. Go. I, I was just going to say I'm really stoked that uh, people are using, still trying to find, I guess, on the cable networks. That seems old, very old school, but appreciate it. You know, it's very, I would say it's analog, but it's just earlier digital. Um, but so here's the show this week. Uh, uh, the Ontario budget was released yesterday, which we will cover probably on next week's show. Suffice to say, uh, they've decided that that cutting basically everything to balance the budget by 2024 is for the good of the future uh, and a moral imperative uh, and doing nothing on climate change. In fact, going backwards is totally fine because the future doesn't exist. So we live in the darkest timeline. Uh, but on this particular timeline, we also have wonderful listeners who suggest uh, topics for us, and one of those we're going to start off with, uh, which is, we're going to talk about the biosphere, uh, which is a, a geodesic dome in, uh, in Montreal, um, and in sort of the, and sort of its, uh, its imagination and where it's coming from, and, and it's, it's under attack, actually. We're, 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 we've got a brief okay, conversation. The biosphere is not a geodesic dome in Montreal. It's North America's only environment and climate change museum, Stefan. Well, okay, there we go. It's not just a geodesic dome. It's okay. housed in a geodesic dome. Okay? Right. But okay. it, okay, fine. Uh, but it is an important landmark which we must protect. Uh, so we'll talk, we're stocking that off the, off the top. Uh, we'll do a bit of a climate overview, and then the rest of the show is really about the movements trying to deal with climate change. Uh, and so we'll cover the Extinction Rebellion, uh, which is coming out of the UK. Uh, we're going to cover the Sunrise Movement from California, and the School Strikes for Climate, which obviously came out of uh, out of Sweden with the climate activist Greta Thunberg. And so, uh, and then at the end of the show, we're going to have an interview uh, with Stuart Basden uh, from the Extinction Rebellion, uh, and then probably chat a little bit more about these movements. But let's start off the bat with this uh, with this geodesic dome. Oh my! You undermine me at every turn. <laughs> In 1967. A 203-foot-tall geodesic dome designed by futurist architect Buckminster Fuller was constructed as the United States Pavilion for the World Fair in Montreal, also known as Expo 67. It was then purchased by the federal government in the early 90s and turned into a water museum, the first of its kind, until 2007 when it officially became North America's first-ever environment and climate change museum. Then Prime Minister Stephen Harper tried to shut it down in 2012, but people stood up for it and managed to salvage 15% of its operating budget. It remains the one and only environment museum in North America, but its lease is set to be handed over to the city of Montreal this year, and without renewed federal funding and official national museum status, it will be forced to close entirely. Other museums that the federal government is protecting include institutions dedicated to war, banking, the Mint, and the Postal Service. Prior to budget cuts, the Biosphere thrived as a center for public education on environmental matters, hosting countless school groups, and holding free video conferences to 70,000 students across the country. It still holds exhibitions on air, water, biodiversity, climate change, sustainable development, renewable energy technologies, and other issues. Given the urgency of environmental issues today and the groundswell of new climate movements, the biosphere has great potential to become a major resource hub and an idea-sharing institution for the decades to come. With renewed funding, it could serve as a place where scientists, the public, researchers, students, NGOs, decision-makers, and media could come together to learn and cooperate on these issues. It could also showcase environment, it could also showcase climate research, simulations, and adaptation and resiliency strategies. It could serve as a public data archive and an incubator of new ideas and technology, as well as a media information, education, training, and international conference center. It could become an international hub for the kind of societal innovation that will be necessary, bringing our society towards the cooperative, environmentally-minded civilization that it must become in order to survive. Its reach could even extend to ecosystem observatories across Canada, becoming a network of monitoring stations with publicly accessible feeds, offering interactive video conferences with schools, municipalities, emergency services, and so on. Former director of the Biosphere, also known as the Environment Museum, Jean Langlais, 
estimates that this plan would require an investment of around $150 million to achieve these goals and an operating budget of 12 to $15 million that could come from measures like the carbon tax. Others have put forward revitalization proposals as well. Because it is a federal program and not a national museum, it can only currently attract visitors and revenue by an arduous process going through the federal government. A week or so ago, the Montreal City Council voted unanimously to support the biosphere, and they resolved that it should have both local and international scope while remaining accessible to the public, and that it should be considered as a hub in the fight against climate change and as a global innovation center. Without continued funding from higher levels of government and an upgrade to museum status, the biosphere will most likely be lost by Labor Day, and our opportunity to build a world-class environment institution will be gone along with it. Yeah. So thanks, Dave. Uh, that is that. So this was actually a some concerned citizens uh, who who learned about this and, and reached out to us. Um, and, and in fact, that one of their struggles was trying to find Anglophone media to cover it. Uh, there's a whole variety of information actually available to in French, um, but they've we've sort of failed to get this onto a slightly li- higher. Um, uh, higher playing field, and so this is this is part of our attempt. If you know anyone or any other connections or other media to help these uh, to help these people uh, sort of bring this to the national attention, uh, please feel feel free to reach out to the show. It'll be happy to connect you um, because these types of things are important. You know what you learn in school uh, and, and and what you learn uh, and what what society sh- what society reflects back on prioritizing is uh, it, it does influence our culture, uh, and so these types of things are incredibly important to protect. And the geodesic dome itself a symbol of sustainable development uh, because it is a one of these lightweight structures that can hold a large amount of weight for how large it is. Right. Yes. So save the dome is really the, the hashtag they definitely will not use. It's a very nice structure. Yes. Um, but but let's move on to why this kind of education is important, um, and specifically, and also why the, the sort of future moves we'll be covering in a second are important, with sort of an overview uh, on some climate-related news. Indeed. And if we begin to act on climate change then something like the biosphere is, would clearly be a, uh, a wonderful thing to have. Yes. So it has just been released that spring temperatures in Alaska are currently 20 degrees above normal levels, and that most of Canada is warming at twice the global average, while northern Canada is warming almost three times as quickly. We're looking at greater winter pre- precipitation in Canada uh, we're also looking at greater winter precipitation in Canada, extreme fire risks, summer, summer water shortages, and greater risk of coastal flooding. The CBC reports that according to Climate Change Canada, quote, the only way to keep global temperature rises in line with the targets set by nations at the Paris Climate Summit in 2015 is for global emissions to peak almost immediately, with rapid and deep reductions thereafter. The report also predicts that under a medium, a medium emission scenario, glaciers in Canada's west will lose between 74% and 96% of their volume by the end of the century. Canada's current climate change plan is, however, woefully weak, since 80% of emissions from our oil and gas industry will be exempt from our already too low carbon tax. And, under current policy, we will not be allowing in <coughs> any climate refugees who come to us through the United States since our country officially sees the U.S. as a safe country, and so we will not recognize claimants who come in through U.S. regular ports of entry. From the U.S. through regular ports of entry. Such refugees, climate or otherwise, are then forced to enter at from random points along the border to their peril. More U.S. states, meanwhile, are clamping down more harshly on climate activists and are also going after the groups and organizers who have not even broken the law, but who merely support those who have, being labeled under new legislation as conspirators or riot boosters. As well, a new report from Influence Map is claiming that, quote, the five largest publicly traded oil and gas majors, ExxonMobil, Royal Dutch Shell, Chevron, BP, and Total, had invested over $1 billion of shareholder funds in the three years following the Paris Agreement on misleading climate-related branding and lobbying. $200 million of that uh, per year has been spent on preventing climate action, and other money has been spent on convincing the public of the greatness and harmlessness of fossil fuels. And now Donald Trump is about to sign two executive orders to fast-track the approval of new pipeline projects. Democracy Now! quotes 350.org director May Bove as stating, quote, 
This is a massive abuse of power that does nothing other than line the pockets of Trump's fossil fuel billionaire friends, all at the expense of our democracy and our safety. Trump can try to rewrite regulations in favor of big oil, but he can't stop people power and our movement. Trump's tariffs on Chinese goods, meanwhile, have brought a shortage of soy to the U.S., which could mean that another 13 million hectares of Amazon rainforest could disappear as Brazil attempts to fill that need. All this comes amidst a flurry of ecosystem warnings. For instance, wild bees and hoverflies in Britain have severely declined over the past few decades. Some bees may be finding new sources of nourishment, however, as small insects called sweat bees were recently found to be living inside the eye of a young woman in Taiwan, consuming her tears for food. As well, a rhino poacher was killed by an elephant in South Africa, and then his body was devoured by a pack of lions. A young whale washed up a couple weeks ago in the Philippines with 40 kilograms of plastic bag bags in its stomach. A new study found that over the next uh, 30 years could cause mosquito-spread diseases like yellow fever to enter Canada and northern Europe. Melting glaciers in Mount Everest, meanwhile, are exposing more and more dead bodies of climbers who had previously been encased in ice. And England's Environment Agency is calling for the country to decrease its water use by a third, lest it run out of water in less than 25 years. I thought I was safe from that uh, bee in the eye story, and then you managed to loop that into a climate change conversation. Well done. Thank so you. The, the, it's, it's, it is impossible, I think, these days uh, to, to live in a space um, and, and not be inundated by the overwhelming uh, need for action. Um, I, at least, at least if you, at least if you are reading the stories and paying attention, listening to the people studying these things, you know that study came out. I think it was this week or last week. That was that, that highlighted the fact that Canada was warming twice as fast as as, as the rest of the world, uh, largely because we're closer to the North Pole and the, and the poles warm faster than everywhere else. But you know these are these are rapidly changing and overwhelming our systems uh, in every turn. And and so and so the re, the re, the response has to be massive, um, and I think that's uh, that we want to leave a little more time in the second section to get into what that response can look like. So we're going to go to a music break uh, relatively soon, um, but uh, because but because the, the, when you when you're faced with this, you are you know at least I personally uh, many days feel a sense of foreboding uh, and a sense of um, helplessness. Uh, in in that you know, especially as you you get things like you know the the conservative budget that that Ford released yesterday, which you know cuts another billion dollars from transit funding, uh, which we would desperately need to be able to move forward. Um, it can feel really, really, really hard. Well, perhaps the more you weep, Stefan, the more tiny little sweat bees there will be to feast upon your tears. That is the kindest thing anyone's ever said to me. Uh, the, you live an enchanted life. Yes, exactly. Um, but but you're, like this is this is the world we live in, and and I think what we have to start thinking about, and think the only thing that really gets me uh, a little less depressed uh, is is talking about the movements that are embracing the scale at which this is this fight is necessary, and embracing the scale at which uh, the response has to be. Uh, and that's our next section. So our next section is going to be talking about, again, the Extinction Rebellion, Sunrise Movement, uh, and then the School Strikes for Climate. Uh, and then the last section, we're going to get to talk uh, to Stu Bastin, who's one of the co-founders of, uh, of of the Extinction Rebellion. And if you're in Canada and care about the biosphere, please reach out to some government official. Yes. And say... Call your MP. Do something about the biosphere. Exactly. Because um, that's a way to take action today. Uh, and, and it's also... Uh, we'll be called to take action on the 15th of April, and there's some work, uh, action going on organized by a uh, few environmental groups in the city uh, or, 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 and across the world, as we'll find out later. But anyways, let's go to a music break, and then we'll come back. The Green Majority is entirely listener-supported. Our goal to reach minimum solvency is to raise $300 a month. If you enjoy the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com for as little as $1. 
and welcome back to the Green Majority here on CAT 89.5 FM, or perhaps one of our wonderful radio syndicates, or maybe even on our podcast, which can be found on greenmajority.ca. Thanks so much for listening, no matter how you are listening. Uh, so we're coming into, again, we're sort of talking about climate change and the... Uh, and the the need for a dramatic response in the organizations that are working towards such a response. Uh, so we're covering three of them right now, uh, starting with, I believe, Extinction Rebellion. Dave. Yes. So Extinction Rebellion is a new global movement started in Britain only five and a half months ago, but has already gained international uh, worldwide coverage for its early actions and is planning a series of major economic disruptions with no end in sight, beginning in three days, on the 15th of April in London. They argue bluntly that we've received our final warning and that our house is on fire. Our species is headed for mass starvation and extinction. We've already seen a biological annihilation of wildlife. Insects are disappearing. We're losing our soil. Our drinking water is disappearing. The oceans are rising in height and acidity. Sea ice is melting and pollution is still climbing. They demand that the government tells the truth about climate change and acts like the truth is real. They plan to halt biodiversity loss and reduce greenhouse gas emissions to net zero by 2025 and create a citizens' assembly informed by experts to lead the government in this transition towards climate and ecological justice. The movement is based on the idea that you only need 3.5% of the population to rebel in order to achieve systemic change. This, uh, that idea was developed by Erica Chenoweth, a professor of public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School, who found that nonviolent direct action is twice as likely, likely to succeed as violent action and requires fewer people. Such nonviolent strategic direct action has four principles. It is performed in a state of such open-heartedness that there is no room for hatred. It must be disruptive so that it can't be ignored. It's sacrificial in that you may be arrested or put in jail. And it creates a disproportionate response from authority that backfires against that authority. The civil rights movement in the U.S. used this very same approach and achieved substantial systemic change with indeed much less than 3.5% of the population. The International Rebellion begins in three days on April 15, 2019. There will be a rally for climate action in Toronto on, at 12.30 p.m. on the 15th at the Osgood Hall Courthouse. The Extinction Rebellion website reads, quote, Conventional approaches to voting, lobbying, petitions, and the protest have failed because powerful political and economic interests prevent change. Our strategy is therefore one of nonviolent, disruptive civil disobedience, a rebellion. Historical evidence shows that we need, that we need the involvement of 3.5% of the population to succeed. In the UK, that's about 2 million people. Yeah. So this is um, the, the, like what's in, what, what I find interesting about but all these organizations really um, is the sort of bluntness at which uh, at which they uh, see the world. Um, I think it's I think when you when you're working in, in climate for so long, you sort of find yourself compartmentalizing uh, the, the danger uh, because you have to. And and I think that. Uh, what's 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 interesting about Extinction Rebellion, um, or one of the things that's interesting, is their sort of refusal to sugarcoat the the, the society that we li- that the danger to our society that we are living through, um, and I think it's highlighted by one of their um, one of their uh, mo- maybe perhaps their most well known supporter in George Monbiot, um, who is. Uh, who is who is who has spent years being you know a, uh, a, a a reporter for the for the Guardian and he you know he spent here's a man who spent so much of his life trying to convince people to take action um, and they're not seeing it um, and you could sort of experience if you've read his writing you could sort of experience him getting slowly more depressed with the fact that we aren't doing anything um, or at least without we're not doing enough to the scale at which the response needs to be and I think there's a uh, inherent um, uh, need to to really st- to, to 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 respond to, because I think there's a there's a disconnect that can happen if you're if you're saying that things are as bad as they are but then saying that the response should be you know a slow ten dollar price on carbon that's slowly raised over the next two hundred years you know that th- th- people can see the fact that the scale of the problem you're su- suggesting and and the solution don't match. 
You know, like if if someone got on the Titanic with a small water bucket and just start and said, "I'm going to bail this," no one would help them um, because because that's just not enough. Um, whereas, you know, a, a response that feels that it matches the 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 uh, the danger, I think, has a much more strong uh, response and in need. Um, but we're going to be able to actually talk to someone from the Extinction Rebellion uh, in, in, in 15 minutes. And so let's get on to their two, because I think we'll, we'll focus on them a little bit for the last section. So <clears throat> the Sunrise Movement is a massive mobilization of teenagers and young people from all around the United States who are taking their future into their own hands and have already seen major successes in having managed to play a huge role in bringing the Green New Deal into the international spotlight by staging sit-ins in Nancy Pelosi's office, as well as Mitch McConnell's, and now a number of Democratic presidential hopefuls and Congress people are also backing the deal. The Green New Deal is sponsored in Congress by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and in the Senate by Ed Markey, and sits at 91 sponsors in the House and 12 co-sponsors in the Senate. And now Labour Party members in the UK are launching their own push for a Green New Deal in Britain. Sunrise call themselves a, quote, movement to stop climate change and create millions of good jobs in the process. And they say they are, quote, building an army of young people to make climate change an urgent priority across America, end the corrupting influence of fossil fuel executives on our politics, and elect leaders who stand up for the health and well-being of all people. On the exchange between Pelosi and Sunrise Movement activists, Noam Chomsky said, quote, they kept trying to point out to her, look, we're the ones who are going to be impacted by the disaster you're helping to create, and the slow reform of steps of the kind you're advocating simply aren't commensurate at all with the scale of the problem. These kids were making that point very forcefully, and she basically had no answer. The Sunrise Movement say they are, quote, gathering in classrooms, living rooms, and worship halls across the country. Everyone has a role to play. Public opinion is already with us. If we unite by the millions, we can turn this into political power and reclaim our democracy. We are not looking to the right or left. We look forward. Together we will change this country and the world, sure as the sun rises each morning. Yeah, and so this is, again, a, another organization taking a, a commensurate, a, 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 a response that is necessary to the global problem. You know, this is a, and what's interesting is, again, this is slightly different tactics. This tactics is going after the politicians and sort of seeing them as a lever point, um, which is slightly different from the, we, while still using nonviolent direct action. I think something that connects these, these organizations, all of these, these organizations is this use of nonviolent direct action. Um, but clearly the sort of other parts of the tactics remain, uh, remain different. And I think that's necessary for a, for a, for a, a for climate success, you know I've said this on the show previously, but uh, a a difference uh, a, that I feel now about about the world that I did not feel say five years ago was that there were, are these there are different types of growing movements and that are all working out towards this sort of same goal. But it previously felt like the environment community could do one thing. You know, there's always one thing that was working on and it didn't feel like it had these, these many arms uh, and responses. And, and so the fact that we're actually seeing that diversification of, of tactics and of responses and uh, of groups uh, highlighting these issues, I think is, a, is, a, is perhaps the best sign we've had in years that action is possible. Yeah, the Sunrise Movement is um, also linking up with other social justice movements. So they're trying to support a larger network. And you're right, they're going directly to the politicians and occupying their space. <clears throat> Whereas Extinction Rebellion is just throwing bodies in the street to get as much as many arrests and public attention as they can to say, look, like we're not going to stop. This is what we have. We're going to continue doing this until something happens. Yeah, exactly. And and I think I think to highlight for on the Sunrise Movement, uh, especially in the, in the exchange they had with Pelosi, uh, is this conversation or concept around predatory delay, uh, which I was introduced to by, uh, by a, a futurist named Alex Steffen. Uh, I don't, I, I imagine it probably existed before that. Um, but the concept really is that this, that the attempts to, to go slowly or the attempts to delay action is, is truly harm caused to the future generations, you know, like that these students who are sitting in Pelosi's office, you know, when they are 80 or when they are as old as Pelosi is, they will be experiencing, you know, at this rate, uh, two to three degrees of warming. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and that is a very, very different world than we currently exist in, right? Um, and so how we manage that is, uh, is, is, tr is difficult. Yeah. And what's really disgusting about the c contemporary 
approach from people in power, the way they speak about it is uh, we like, like there's like either it's going to happen or it's not going to happen. They essentially believe that. But uh, what was pointed out in Extinction Rebellion talk, which I, which I watched on YouTube was that in fact, every point, every fraction of a degree that is prevented will have, will have major impact. I mean, Will have impact yes. on the future. So no, and no matter what, like what we other these tipping points, there's all this cascading potential, but anything that is done is good. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and to into into any type of delay means that we're increasing harm. You know, like every single thing that happens from now on out is an increase in harm for future generations. Yeah. But Extinction Rebellion believes that they in fact can win. They're looking at six years. Right. They yeah. believe they can win. Well, and and you have uh, yeah, exactly, and you need that, right? You need that 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 sort of belief and that sort of work, um, and and so and so this is what's interesting is that again these are there's a slight different text, and so there's a third one obviously that is perhaps currently actually maybe having, I want to say actually out of the three the largest marches and maybe the most press, um, while while also while also working uh, towards again another similar goal and, and making a similar case. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so we have all, of course, by now heard of the many victories of Greta Thunberg, <clears throat> 16-year-old Swedish climate activist who started in 2018 striking from school every Friday to picket her parliament on climate change, only to see the movement turn global, with hundreds of thousands of students across the world now striking every week. This last major, the last major protest on March 15th saw millions of participants across the globe, with 150,000 strikers in Canada alone. According to 350.org, March 15th was the biggest day of global climate action ever organized. There are now official groups organized by high schoolers in countries on every continent, and Greta can be heard telling off adults and political leaders in videos all over the internet. <laughs> Their website simply states, quote, school children are required to attend school, but with the worsening climate destruction, this goal of going to school begins to be pointless. Why study for a future which may not be there? Why spend a lot of effort to become educated when our governments are not listening to the educated? In, this, in his introduction to a recent Extinction Rebellion talk, George Monbiot mentioned the, climate, mentioned the climate strikes, stating that the indifference and denial of the political and economic classes switched a few years ago into mere despair, and that, quote, between the denial and the despair, there was not one moment at which they said it's real, it's an issue, and therefore we must act. And I began to think that nothing is going to tackle this. And then suddenly, two extraordinary emer- movements emerge just at the moment I thought that hope had died. Extinction Rebellion and the climate strikes. And for the first time in years, I believe that we really can meet these issues head on and turn, our cat- turn around our catastrophic political and economic systems so that they serve us rather than destroy us. For her part, Greta Thunberg has said, quote, People always tell us that they are so hopeful. They are hopeful, for the young people. They are hopeful that the young people are going to save the world. But we're not. There is simply not enough time to wait for us to grow up and become the ones in charge. She has also said, quote, People keep asking me what is the solution to the climate crisis. They expect me to know the answer. That is beyond absurd, as there are no solutions within our current systems. We need a whole new way of thinking. The political system that you've created is all about competition. You cheat when you can because all that matters is to win. That must come to an end. We need to start cooperating and sharing the remaining resources of this planet in a fair way. We are just passing on the words of the science. Our only demand is that you start listening to it and then start acting. So I want to I want to I want to put a pull a quote uh, from uh, from yesterday's Ontario budget. Uh, Climate change is not an end in itself. Instead, it is both a fiscal and moral imperative that is in the public interest. No, that's not a real quote. The well, the quote, the real quote is change climate change there to balancing the budget. So this quote is actually balancing the budget is not an end in itself. Instead, it is both a fiscal and moral moral imperative that is in the public interest. And I want to point out something that currently the the what what we're being told right now uh, across the world is that these austerity governments um, that are directly harming people right now. You know, uh, yesterday's budget cut a, a bunch of money from legal aid. Uh, you know, from 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 like basically every like from from housing from the TDC. Basically, there are people who are going to be much worse off. You know, the overdose centers uh, will actually you know reduction in payment that will actually lead probably to deaths tomorrow. And and we're being told that all of those things are a moral like absorbing all of these bad things is a moral imperative because we have to balance the budget. 
And yet the same people who've decided that we can withstand all of these harms, that the society that exists right now can, can, can withstand all of these harms that are literally happening today, tomorrow, and, and ongoing, uh, cannot stand four cents at a gas pump to, to save our future. You know, it is this it is this completely one sided understanding that for some reason you can look into the future on a balancing a budget as if that is the most important thing when you are simultaneously advocating directly for the destruction of a planet. That is the only way we can live. So, uh, Stefan, I want to jump in and, and finish grinding the other side of that X blade, if I may. Um, the idea here is not only misplaced and misguided, but a balancing a budget is a fine thing. It is, right? It's better to not owe people money than to owe people money. Fair enough. Uh, here's the problem, Stefan. Um, our entire economic system rests on the concept of, of debt, uh, if banks weren't allowed to operate, uh, if banks had to operate with zero, uh, you know, money out, that's our entire, literally the basis of our entire economic system. Debt is what fuels the economy. If everybody balanced their budgets, the economy would collapse. We're going to get Tim Nash back on here to put some, some nails in that coffin, but rest assured, <laughs> everything in the economy rests on debt. So is it better to balance a budget than to not all else being equal? Yeah, I'd say so. I think we could all agree on that, but let's let's do what never gets done and, and needs to be done, must be done, is create a, uh, a, a very realistic and close approximation metaphor. In the household, balancing a budget, fine thing. Are there ever times when you need to spend money at the cost of a balanced budget? Well, I think any of us can spend about four seconds thinking of that thing. Uh, my kid's gonna die if they don't get this medical treatment. On the other hand, I'd hate to run a debt. It's a, it's a lunacy. It's a lunacy concept. It's an absolutely fictitious concept to have, to, to, that balanced budgets should ever, ever be a higher priority than any other urgent need is on its face ridiculous, dishonest, and immoral. Sure, well, I, I agree, but the 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 point that I was I was trying to trying to hammer home here was not necessarily that there is value or not value in balancing budgets. I think that's a conversation. Obviously, I'm with you. Right. Um, but the, the, my point was that the entire concept of a balanced budget is a red herring. That's the point I was trying to make. Right. Even by bringing it up, is to say I don't have a real argument, and so I'm trying to deceive you. That's my point. That is not your right. point. Right. That's my point. Right. Yeah. Because 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 the the thing I wanted to sort of I wanted to sort of hammer home here is the fact that. It is clear that the conservative government, or that austerity, that the anyone who's pushing austerity politics believes that we have to give something up for what they think is valuable, and yet simultaneously, the exact same people argue that it's not possible to do it on things like climate. Um, and it's, this is the reason why, you know, this is what these 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 movements are are are, are facing. Is this sort of two, you're talking at both sides of your mouth, um, and and it is why these types of actions are so important, um, and. You know, uh, it's 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 necessary to take some real action here. Not to mention that our climate, uh, our climate, uh, our carbon reduction um, attempts were in fact bringing revenue to the to the government, which they now say, oh, we don't have it, so we're taking other stuff. Well, exactly. What's, what's amazing is that we still have re still Ontario still actually has record high levels of, of of a deficit because we lost all the money from you know the billion dollars from carbon tax, um, cap and trade, cap and trade. Sorry, uh, but yeah. So we're gonna go to music break in half a second, and then we're gonna be on the phone with Stuart Basden from the from the Extinction Rebellion. Um, but before we get there, I just want to sort of again, uh, if you want to know any more about these organizations, uh, look look up this really they may, the power of Google is impressive. Uh, school strikes for climate. Climate, uh, the Sunrise Movement, and Extinction Rebellion uh, are all um, fascinating, uh, important, and necessary steps towards getting us the action that we need. Um, if you and, are not a high schooler yes. or in the U.S., the Extinction Rebellion is the most feasible thing to the to, get, to, well, to, to become a part of. Well, and then, then there's still the all the you know it's funny it's funny calling an organization like 350.org a legacy organization because it's been around for a whole 10 years but that's how new the whole climate movement is um, you know because these are there are still many organizations that are still working on on this all over the place they're small big Bill McKibben is, is an old man yes well Bill McKibben has a plan to radicalize the elderly which I think is great <laughs> uh, let's uh, let's go to the music break and then we'll come back with Stu. the shape of our etched part 
And welcome back to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps on one or one of our wonderful radio syndicates, or maybe on the podcast, which of course can be found on greenmajority.ca. Uh, we, are now li- we are now broadcasting, uh, or rec- we are now uh, have Stu on the phone uh, from, from the UK, I believe. Stu, are you there? Yes, I am. Hi there. Amazing. Stu, thank you so much. I know that you said that you're, you're very busy uh, and very hard at work, and so we might not get you for the whole 20 minutes. So I want to start off uh, with the, the sort of the very first uh, – well, why don't first want you to position yourself within, within uh, Extinction Rebellion. Sort of how did, how did you – what's your story? How did you get there? So I used to live in Toronto, as you know. Um, I was organizing with the Toronto350.org, um, and then I left there to go and um, – go to the Climate Paris uh, uh, COP COP in uh, 2015. And then from there, I decided I was going to start traveling around Europe and visit other activist communities um, and try and find something that um, that basically had vision um, and that I could... The idea was originally that I'd bring those ideas back and carry on living in Toronto. Um, But I just kept extending my trip and never managed to come back to Toronto. Um, and then eventually, at the end of the, a year's traveling, I came across a group called Rising Up that just started. They just had their first action. I went to that, uh, which was to try and shut down the road going into Heathrow. We, we succeeded generally, but I personally didn't. The police managed to grab me and take me away from the scene. Um, but then I went to a, an intro training, uh, their first intro training, and I was like, wow, this has got a vision. This is what I want to do. And so I decided... Uh, basically that day um, that I was going to stay, stick around in the UK and give this movement, or this tiny group, it was just like three people starting off and running an intro training. Um, but I decided to give them uh, two years of my life. Um, that was rising up, and a year and a half later, um, we decided, hey, let's come together as a team. We built up a group of about 30 people, um, and that sort of group coming together said, let's start off and create a rebellion. Um, so that was a, basically a year ago. We met in Bristol, and uh, there was 15 of us in that founding meeting. Um, and then, so I've been sort of involved. I just quit my job a week later, and I've been full-time with Extinction Rebellion uh, for the last year. Amazing. Um, and so, and so, and so we, we sort of had a, a brief intro uh, from, from Dave in the middle section about, about sort of the Extinction Rebellion's uh, understanding and tactics. Um, and, but I'm, I'm interested to hear from, from you sort of uh, what is, uh, what's, how do you sort of see the situation you're currently in in that push towards that 5%? Going to push towards what? Sorry, uh, sorry the the five percent, three point five, three point five percent. Sorry, you need even fewer people. That's great news. Uh, the push towards three point five percent of the population to to really uh, act as a tipping point. Uh, yeah. Okay. So um, that three point five percent that's needed as a tipping point that comes from the work of Eric Chenoweth um, uh, with the uh, nonviolent communication. No, not not nonviolent communication. Nonviolent center for. Uh, a Center for Nonviolent Conflict, something like that. Anyway, a uh, really good study talked about how there wasn't a single dictator um, that stood up to 3.5% of the population being mobilized um, throughout the 20th century. And so we thought, well, we've got to get 3.5% of the population mobilized. Doing the research around that, and sort of historically what's happened is start doing mass civil disobedience, um, and you don't need to get 3.5% of the population doing mass civil disobedience what you need is probably around 10,000, 20,000, 30,000. It's in that range. Range. It's not a couple of hundred. It's not two million people. It's that you need, you know, tens of thousands of people um, who are, you know, willing to do uh, civil disobedience. Once you get that, um, that's the kind of level at which then triggers a much larger non-linear escalation. Um, and so that's when the uh, the 3.5 percent come in. Um, you won't always, you know, that, that's at the peak mobilization point. We are now at the point where we are bringing together um, thousands. I'm not sure exactly how many of the thousands we've got, but thousands of people, definitely. Um, and it might be peaking into the tens of thousands of people who are willing to come and get arrested um, in London next week on Monday. Yeah, so let's let's let's, let's talk about that. Um, April fifteenth is sort of the the big international day of action. Uh, so what's the what's the situation? What's what's happening there? Um, so it's everything is moving really quickly and everything is changing really quickly. Um, 
But basically, we're going to go and occupy five sites in central London, um, Parliament Square being an obvious one, uh, but Marble Arch, uh, Waterloo Bridge, Oxford Circus, Piccadilly Circus. Um, these are all going to be occupied early on in the day. Uh, we're going to set up a camp at Marble Arch. Um, and then from there, we're going to go and send out affinity groups, action groups, to go around the city and create sort of blockades, uh, road blockades um, throughout the city. Um, and the, the sites that we're going to take and hold, those are basically there to help the affinity groups uh, to carry on doing what they do day after day, night after night. Um, additional to that, we're going to eventually start, probably middle of the week, uh, start shutting down the tube system, climbing on top of trains, um, and then a load of other actions are being planned sort of alongside all of this. Wow. So, um, so, so sorry. The point you. being that economic disruption is absolutely critical. Um, you know, the government can take things being shut down for a day or two and, you know, even a week, they're probably going to sit there and go, ah, oh, the system can hold it. But after 10 days, after two weeks, that's when the accountants start going up to the CEOs of the companies, you know, the the, the restaurant chains and the uh, the people, the, the offices which haven't had their staff um, or staff have been three hours late to work several days in a row. And the accountants start saying, hey, hang on a second, this isn't cool, we're losing money here. And so then the CEOs get on the phone to the government uh, and of course, government listens to business um, quite openly, and so and the, the, the companies say, "Hang on a second, our economy, our companies are struggling. Um, we can't take this, so you better go and negotiate with these people who've managed to lock down the city." Right. Yeah. Stop it, them. Yeah. Stop them doing that. Right, and that sort of speaks to, to one of the one of the one of the ideas is this relentlessness, right? That that it's not just an action on April fifteenth, and then it will just be another month or two months. It, the 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 concept feels like it's 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 consistent and it's and it's dis um, uh, it's decentralized, um, and so and and so so how, since you 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 you've described sort of how you see that 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 progressing, um, how can people how can people get involved? What can people do? Um. So I mean. Um, at this stage, it's, it's all, all hands on deck to get to London and do stuff there. Obviously, I'm talking to people in Toronto. That's probably not what you want to do, especially if you're trying to reduce your climate impact. Um, I believe that there are things, uh, actions happening across um, Canada, though, so-called Canada. Um, we're also calling for people to hold people's assemblies on the 20th of April. Um, so if, they, if you are interested in do, doing that, anyone can call the People's Assembly um, and just get people together and get people talking about, okay, what can we do? Um, what is it that we can do here to get organized and make sure that this spreads um, and get out there? So I'd, I'd say try and get a People's Assembly organized um, and up and running on the 20th of April. Amazing. Um, and so, uh, so the, the like you've sort of gone, you, you've you've taken us through a bit of the story of of sort of how you see the first uh, the first wave of this sort of happening. Um, but let's let's finish that story. How do you, um, you know, uh, as, as I mentioned, Extinction Rebellion has 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 given themselves a six year timeline. Um, how do you see us progressing in 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 that speed? How 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 do can how can this happen? This is sort of you know you're you're pushing a a. A pretty pretty large shift uh, in society, as 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 you can imagine, which is of course um, within climate change quite necessary. Uh, but sort of, yeah. How do you see that finishing? How do you how do you what's the what's the outcome? Yeah. So um, XR works in with the concept of iterations. We did something back in November where we shut down five bridges in London for one day. We're coming back this time in London with a much larger shutdown that's going to persist over weeks. Um, but that's not going to be the end of it, right? The what we need is a global rebellion um, against the system that's destroying life on this planet. Um, and so we're, we're working to build internationalist connections and uh, build trust uh, with different groups, different movements. Uh, I know that that is happening in various different ways internationally as well. Um, but I, I would guess at this point, it's not planned, but I'm guessing that we would come back in the autumn with a much more internationally connected plan um, the the theory of change really is about it's, it's about going to um, capital cities uh, where the elite hang out and um, where the governments are and shutting down capital cities. So there is a focus on doing that, and there is a focus on persisting 
uh, with economic shutdown uh, until demand is getting met. I also think that the right now we're talking about two of the pillars that hold up neoliberalism, this predatory capitalist like system that we're in. Um, the pillars that we're addressing now are um, our failed de- uh, and fake democratic system. Um, you know, electoral politics have been completely outmaneuvered by Cambridge Analytica and such, um, and they've been failing for years anyway with this representative system of, of the elite. Um, so we're addressing that by saying we need to implement citizen assembly as regular people make, getting informed and making decisions on behalf of all of us. Um, and then we're also going after uh, the media who have been lying to us um, and uphold the system uh, as it currently stands by just their, um, their misrepresentation of what's going on in the world. So those are two of the pillars of neoliberalism. But the third one that we, we need to go after is the economic and financial system. We're not doing that this spring very much. We're going to start talking about it. Um, but the, the global rebellion, when it comes, it, it needs to address the financial system. And we've seen that through the, through the history of uh, hundreds of years of um, resistance movements and revolutions and rebellions. But generally, the financial thing is the stickiest point. It's the point that hasn't that, uh, sort of been met, whether it's the suffragettes or the civil rights movement. You know, you get some rights, but you don't get equal pay, um, things like that. So, and it's not just about getting equal pay. It's a much larger thing that needs to happen, a transformation of our economic system globally that needs to happen. And so I would say probably in the autumn, expect something global and expect something that's about the finance system. Amazing. Um, and so I, I want to respect your time uh, and, and we're coming to the show. So I just want to leave you the last question, which is if people want to learn more um, and, and find out more about this or the, the whole the whole ethos, uh, where can they find out more information? Um, I think the website is rebellion.earth. It might have changed a couple of days ago to extinctionrebellion.org.uk and maybe they're going to make the rebellion.earth a globally focused one. Um, but yeah, I think rebellion.earth is probably the best place. There's also just look locally for Extinction Rebellion, wherever you are, uh, city, name, town, whatever it is, uh, and, and find uh, the event close to where you are, get involved, get organizing with them. Um, if there isn't one in your town, then set one up. Um, and yeah, it, no one needs permission to organize with Extinction Rebellion. You just need to stick to the principles and the values and, and go, uh, you know, get aligned with the purpose. Amazing. What we're trying to do. Amazing. Uh, thank you so much, Stu. Uh, do you have any last words before uh, before we before we move on? Um, I think that we're living in really exciting times. Um, I think that finally people's eyes are opening up to the fact that um, the system, as it stands, is going to kill us, and that civil disobedience, nonviolent mass civil disobedience, is basically the only answer that we've got left um, that has any chance of um, addressing the things that we need to do um, to change the sort of this suicidal uh, global system. Um, but it looks like people are waking up to that, and it's really exciting, and there's so much energy. Um, and I just want to like say just how amazing it is to be involved with this thing, to feel the empowerment that's happening. Um, and, yeah, get involved, because it, it's just such an emotional relief to have so many cool people around and have like some output. Um, but, but, hey, we can make a change. We can make a difference. We can make this world survive and oh. thrive, hopefully. Amazing. Thank you so much, uh, Stu Basden of, of Extinction Rebellion. Um, have, a, have a wonderful uh, evening. Thank you so much. Um, and thanks for staying up thanks late. Thanks so much. <laughs> Best of luck not getting Yeah, and it's really nice to speak with the uh, Toronto folk again. Yes, I know. Um, we miss yeah, you, Stu. I, I, I miss know, you lot. I, I didn't speak, but uh, Saren's here as well. We miss you, Stu. <laughs> <laughs> Take care, friend. Cool. All right. Take care. Thanks a lot. Yeah, thank so we we only have like one minute left. Can I can I squeeze in a comment here? Is Please. there anything else urgent? Okay. Uh, so no, I just I wanted to ask Stu about this, but Stu's on. Uh, was I think it was up at like five a.m. or something. Wait, it's midnight there. I think it's. Yeah. A, I think it's, I believe it's an eleven or twelve hour difference. It's like, so yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> so um, really, what I was going to ask about. So um, there was a clip I played a few weeks ago with uh, AOC with the the Kinder, uh, not Kinder Morgan. Uh, doesn't matter. Banker. Wells Fargo. Wells Fargo. Thank you. Um, so there was another one. I didn't cut the clip out for today, and we're not going to have time for it next week because we have two guests. But I'm I'm going to keep logging these things because it's this point that I want to keep really hammering, right? If you were listening to um, Democracy Now! before us, uh, Noam Chomsky was talking a lot about uh, these types of things today as well. Um, but 
like the the powerful people, the people who make these decisions that that decide, like Stu was saying, right? Like the 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 private corporations that then tell government what to do don't have any good arguments for this stuff. It's just that no one has ever put them to the wall before, right? So that was what that AOC clip was about, right? Getting him to admit that it wasn't because we thought this was safe, because we thought this was financially safe for us, right? That's what the decision was. There was no grant. So the thing when you actually, the reason it's important is that when you actually talk to people, and we're not going to get sucked into it, David, but David and I have been having some fun interacting with quote unquote, the public on uh, uh, the Facebook page, um, is that people are going to say things like, oh, well, no, you don't understand. No, you're just, a, you're just stupid. This is all business. These are, ec no, no, they really no. Any, any citizen can go. Even one of these people that supports these right-wing people can go and ask questions that they assume these people obviously have good answers to, and they don't. So the clip we're going to play in a couple of weeks, I'll pull it in, um, was a woman asking, she looked up banking pay rate for her town jobs in her towns, added up, found someone who works for that company, a different bank, but still a banker, um, and a single mother trying to live on like $22,000 a year or something insane. And she put it right, and she walked through, right? It was incredible. I loved every second of it. She walks through like $27 for childcare, $58 for the, for the cheapest phone you can buy. She's at a net loss of $500 a month. How do you, what do you expect to do about that? And the, the lobbyists, the banker were literally like shaking terrified because they don't have good answers. And I guarantee you, if they had that hearing every week for a month, Americans would get a $10,000 pay raise overnight, right? Like there aren't good questions for this. We just have to keep asking them. And that's what I wanted to tie into the theme of what Stu was saying was this stuff really does work. You just have to ask more than once, but you'd be surprised how bad answers some of these people have. And that will wake more people up. Hey, I just thought, I just assumed that the, the, these green people were crazy and that these banker people who get paid millions of dollars know what they're doing. Yeah. It turns out they don't. They're just greedy. <laughs> have a good green week folks. We'll see y'all real soon.